This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Today we have uh, the opportunity to talk to an eminent UK uh, leader and educator, Professor Petra Vent. Petra, thank you for making time to talk to us today from Italy. Um, I'm jealous that uh, you're in Italy and I'm in a dark and relatively cool Sydney. So um, <laughs> I, I am with you in spirit, given that I spent uh, a couple of weeks in Italy in um, August. So look, in um, preparing um, for today, I asked you to bring an object with you that represents your, your journey and your approach as an educator and as a leader. So can you show us what you came up with? Okay, so let's see whether you can see that. I can, and you might describe yes. it to people when they see it afterwards. Yeah. So this is a photo of my parents getting married and they're getting married uh, after the Second World War. And it is my parents who influenced everything that education for me stands for, both in terms of um, blocking my having an education and then ultimately supporting me. And, and the reason why they were blocking me was that they had no money and working class background and simply could not afford to send me even to grammar school. So they just hoped that I would go to, in, in Germany, it's a kind of middle school, uh, after which I could leave the school at the age of 14 and then maybe get married to somebody who could support me. And it was my primary school teacher who basically, uh, well, who knocked on my parents' door every day to try and convince them that I had to go to grammar school and that I shouldn't go to, to the middle school. And my parents just said, no, they said they couldn't afford to. And anyway, I wasn't bright enough. So because I was quite a shy girl and also I couldn't really um, uh, yeah, com communicate in, in, in a socially adequate way, simply coming from the family that I came from, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my parents didn't want to send me to grammar school, but the, the primary school teacher saw something in me. And in the end, she convinced my parents to send me to, to grammar school. And, and I did struggle because I, I didn't really understand the concept of learning. The other kids had come from better schools, better families. I, I didn't know how to prepare for classes and I did struggle. And I nearly had to repeat a year twice or even three times because in the German system, if you don't cope very well with more than one subject, you have to repeat the whole year. And I, I managed to, to get around it. And after that, I had some very, very supportive teachers in grammar school. One was an art teacher and one was the maths teacher. And again, both of them you know, encouraged me to do my A-levels, do them reasonably well. I didn't do brilliantly, but to encourage me to go to university. And by then, my parents thought, yeah, maybe, you know, there's something in her and she can go to university. Obviously, I had to support myself. And from the age of uh, 14, I always worked every single holiday, every weekend, just to save money 
to learn how to drive and then to be able to go to university. So that was all me and nobody else. But my parents made it able that I could work. They supported me in doing that and saving the money. And then I went to university and bit by bit, my parents were converted that education may be a good thing. And then to cut a long story short, um, I made quite a success with my life after university. And they slowly, by the time I was 40, it took a while, they understood that maybe I was quite successful. And then they were so proud of me. And when I was in, uh, in Scotland, Prince of Queen Margaret University, the Queen invited me to meet the Pope, the German Pope then. And I showed the invitation card to my parents. And then they thought, oh, maybe she has made it. Yeah, maybe she is something important. Because they never quite understood what I was doing. And simply their pride then yeah, compensated for everything they'd done in my early life to stop my education or to hinder my education. So they then did realize that, that my education got me somewhere. But it uh, obviously made, made me realize, and that was always my motto in, in higher education, that the background, where you come from, is just so important uh, in, in, in school, in higher education, further education, wherever you are, it's just so, so important. And the role that teachers have in schools and that universities have later on in, in, in helping kids with potential to, to, to reach uh, their, their goals um, has made me, uh, that has been my philosophy all my life, yeah, to widen participation basically and made it possible to all kinds of ways yeah, to engage with schools, with children, with their families, very importantly, with their families, whoever their families might be. Yeah, they might be brought up by one parent only or by no parent. Yeah, they might be in foster care. They might be um, uh, raised by an uncle, by an aunt. And, and getting these people in and engaging them and, and, and telling them, look, if your kid is bright and your kid is bright, you know, he or she can make it, yeah, with a bit of support. So this is where my parents came in. But, uh, my background, which was a difficult one, yeah, to get an education, then eventually the enormous support and pride and, and, and making me what I am to, to try and change people's lives. So how do you account for your success? Because you have been successful by any means, the Principal Vice-Chancellor of a university, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of, um, of, of another university, and of course, the fellowships that you've been awarded. So what makes you tick? <laughs> I think I've always had, uh, well, there are two things. On the one hand, I always had the support of people. There were always wonderful people in my, in my working lives who saw something in me and who encouraged me to, to go places which I wouldn't have gone myself. And this is where I think, again, the lack of confidence and the enormous shyness I used to have plays a role. So I, I seem to rely on people sort of pushing me in the, in the right direction. So I, was, I had a supportive dean at some stage, then a very supportive deputy vice chancellor and so on. But the other thing that ticks me is, and, and it's such a naive sentence, um, trying to make things better. It's, it's horrible to say it that way, and it sounds arrogant, it sounds naive, but uh, I wanted to be in a role where I could achieve things. Uh, and, and when I was just, um, sorry, just, when I was just an academic uh, lecturing in Italian, 
I, I couldn't quite, I saw what, what could be improved, but I wasn't in a role that I could do it. And that obviously inspired me as well to go up the management route uh, to, to try and, and um, realize change. So you touched very briefly on your university life. Can you just elaborate a little bit more of what, what university was like and why you chose the subjects and the disciplines that you did? Well, um, I chose Italian and I chose art, but art college didn't accept me. So that was another disappointment because I thought studying Italian and art together would be wonderful. From the age of 14, I learned Italian in evening classes because again, uh, my parents didn't have money uh, to go on holiday. But when I was 14, uh, the Italian lira apparently was so weak that it was cheaper to go to Italy than staying in Germany. So my parents and my mother's sisters and husbands and all my cousins, so a big clan in four cars, we drove down to Italy. And that was the first time I went on holiday and the first time I was abroad. And Italy inspired me so much. It was just absolutely incredible. I was just bowled over by, by the beauty, by the language, by the difference. So and I must admit, it could have been any other country, but it happened to be Italy. And this is then when I started learning Italian in evening classes uh, until I was 17 and I went to university and then decided to study Italian. So art college didn't accept me. So I've swapped that for French. So I, I studied Italian and French to become a teacher. So I studied Italian, French and education. And in, in German, if you want to become a teacher, you need to, to study two main subjects and then always education with it. So this was my choice. And but university was hard because in, in Germany, and it is still the case nowadays, it is sink or swim. So you, um, although Germany now has bachelor's and master's, I mean, nobody finishes their degree in three years. You know, it's three years, four years, five years, six years, seven years. A master's is always two years minimum. Uh, when I studied, uh, I did it relatively quickly and I did it in six years, which is very quick for Germany that, at that stage. But it was hard because there was no, uh, what we call numerous clauses. Uh, everybody has the right to go to university, but then nobody's looking after you. And that was hard very hard and and in fact my first two years I got very bad grades and because I didn't quite know how to write academic essays um yeah I just didn't know how to do it and and again also the lecturers weren't very supportive they didn't encourage you they didn't uh, give you constructive comments in fact everything written underneath was just always negative. You know, every, every, every essay that I, I handed in had a negative comment underneath. I then uh, applied to become a, an assistant to the professor and to earn money because I worked all the time. Yeah, I needed to work. So I, I taught Italian in the evenings, in, in, evening, in an evening school. I, I was the receptionist of student accommodation in the mornings. So I did sort of everything to earn money, but I thought if I were an assistant for the professor, it would bring me closer to the academic subject and I could earn while I was working in the library. But the professor simply said, look, look your grades aren't good enough. You know, I only want the ones with the best grades. And I said, but I read somewhere that you give out these jobs as well to those in financial need. 
So we had a little think about it. So in the end, he gave me the job. And it was that that saved my academic career because uh, I worked for eight hours in the library every day. And my job was to catalog new books that were coming in, Italian books. And so by default, I had to read them. And, and I was close to the professor. I suddenly started to understand academia and what it was all about. And yeah, and within three, four months, my grade, uh, grades improved from just about pass to first class. And, and that then gave me the opportunity to end up with the first class and uh, starting a PhD and so on. So again, it's, it's, it's the same story. It's a remarkable story. And, and given that story then, in, throughout your career, how have you, how has that um, acted as a filter, but also an incentive in terms of want, your wanting to, as you say, to make a difference and help students be successful? Well, right from the start. So when I started teaching at Middlesex University, which was Middlesex Polytechnic then, uh, I lectured in Italian and, and polytechnics, as, as you know, weren't uh, traditional universities and accepted people from all kinds of backgrounds. And my teaching was very challenging, but I just wanted to bring people along. I, mm -hmm. I spent an enormous time uh, with my students outside the classroom as well. Uh, I uh, tutored them for free, you know, but you do that just to explain to them uh, how, again, how academia works, how you write an essay, how, how the grammar works when I was teaching Italian language. And I was so proud. There were some students who came from nothing, uh, previous drug addicts, <laughs> and uh, some very mature as well. And they ended up with really good grades. And some of them still write to me now, you know, and, and saying how grateful they were. So it was the teaching to start with. And, and then I became um, head of languages. And we, what we did there, we tried to rewrite the curriculum in order to offer different types of assessment, which, was, which is the norm nowadays. But, but when I started, it was just you know, written examinations and nothing else. So we, we changed uh, types of assessment in order to make it possible for different learners to um, get used to, um, well, to understanding what the subject was about, but also to feel uh, positivity and to, um, yeah, to get grades and to pass. So it, it's not that we gave them the choice, but what we did in each, in each curriculum, we had um, a range of assessments, whether it's verbal, whether it's continuing assessment, whether it's group assessment, or, or, or so that every student had access to different kinds of assessment, so that on average they did cope in the end. So this is what I then could achieve when I was um, the head of, uh, of the department. And, and that continued uh, when I became Dean at another university in London. I was Dean of Humanities and Education. So teacher training was part of, of my faculty then. So I could then talk to all, all the academics when it comes to school education and what they would do there for the students. Uh, I also chaired um, a research group, a longitudinal research group, which followed students for five years, the first three years at university, and then two years into their first jobs. And it was quite clear as depending on where the students came from, 
they were less ambitious going into the jobs. But what was also clear was that uh, by the time in the second year in their job, they said, oh, I wish I had studied what they told us to study because it would have been so useful now in my job. So that clearly taught me and all the researchers that yes, we obviously know better when it comes to what students need, but students don't necessarily see that they need this. So we, we try to approach the students in a different way to try to make them understand that this is really a useful subject or a useful module to study and showing them the results of this longitudinal research to tell them, look, I know it might be a bit, might be a bit of a pain to study this now, but you know, you will get a good job afterwards and you will succeed. So in other words, in every, in every little job that I was in afterwards, I managed to implement changes uh, to make it easier. And then obviously the big thing is the widening participation myself, yeah, going out into schools and, and being a principal vice chancellor in the end gave me the platform to do that uh, nationally. Uh, and not only yeah, in my little world. So, for example, I was elected uh, commissioner of a widening participation commission, which was a, a two year long commission, which came up with uh, targets cha of changing um, uh, education in Scotland and, and, and real percentage targets, which forced universities, including the traditional universities uh, like Edinburgh, Glasgow and St Andrews, forced them to change uh, both the admission, the admission criteria, um, they, the way they engage with potential students with schools, in, uh, forced them to change the way they assessed. And, and that was brilliant. All of the Scottish government asked me to chair a commission for education for schools in Scotland. Uh, to improve teacher education in Scotland. So I chaired that and I had uh, teachers on the commission. I had po politicians on the commission at the unions, the staff unions on the commission. Uh, very, very challenging rewriting policy yeah, for a government. So at every level, yeah, I, I, I was able to try and do something to, to improve education. And I, I'm, it sounds as though you did that. When you, I mean, you're now on the outside of higher education, but you sort of come in and out. So there's that sort of insider outsider perspective. What what do you see as the major challenges confronting higher education at the moment? Unfortunately, it's still money, uh, and depending obviously in which country you work. Um, I do a lot of work in Germany at the moment, a bit of work in Austria as well. And comparing that to the UK is, is interesting because um, uh, Austrian and German universities are supported by the state. And, in, and, and if you compare that to UK universities, you think they're really, really rich. Yeah, they're really rich and they don't have to bother too much about uh, donations. Yeah, philanthropy is a completely new subject as, as well. But because they're not used to it, they also don't have enough money. And I see that uh, financially in the UK. Uh, I also see it as a challenge. Um, UK government uh, changes to, to higher education policy that the UK government is trying to bring in. I'm, I'm really worried what that means for widening participation. Uh, simply also the ideas that um, they do not want to support universities that do not get enough students into managerial jobs. 
in, in particular excluding jobs from from the categories which are hugely important to the UK or any other country as well but simply if you're not a lawyer or if you're not a doctor or if you're not um, very high up on the managerial scale or if your salary isn't good enough you know they want to punish universities for that and, and universities in the UK have become a vehicle of widening participation they, they have had an enormous impact and, and my feeling is that it, it's going backwards or it's going to go backwards. So that for me is, is a huge challenge as well. So given the, the sort of that students have to earn, as, as you did yourself, have to earn money to be, to be able to attend, how would you describe the current student experience? And, and let's, let's think of it um, post-COVID. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's getting harder. Post-COVID, even harder. Well, there, there are some positives because you know students got more used to online stuff, and that obviously gives them more flexibility as well. But uh, but COVID itself has really widened the attainment gap, and and this is what worries me because post-COVID there's now an even bigger gap uh, now than than before in terms of where you come from and which grade you had had or whether you come from a non-traditional route into university because uh, two years of working from home and potentially not having the support of, of educated parents, potentially not having a computer at home and so on, has, has made it a lot worse. Um, I think that uh, students are resilient and, and many have come through it well. Many are now used to the flexibility. Uh, universities now make it also possible to, to give students computers to use at home as well. So that is okay. The, the working bit, I think most universities do realize, you know, that students work and, and, and need to earn money to survive. But where they're not that good at yet is, is offering a 24 seven service, which, which students need. Um, mm -hmm. I remember Queen Margaret University, our library, we made sure it was open 24 seven. And we had CCTV in the library and, and you could see the pattern of studying of students. And that meant that they went to the library at 11 at night after their shift in the pub, yeah, where they worked, then went to the library and worked there. And at three in the morning, they had pizza delivered to the library to continue working until early in the morning. And, and this is something which universities need to make possible, but it's financially very, very difficult to do. So given that the title of this series is Reimagining Higher Education, if you had the opportunity to reimagine the student experience, what, what would you focus on? I would focus on the educated, educators first. Uh, there, mm -hmm. there are still too many people who go through education becoming educators, thinking it is their right to be who they are and thinking uh, students of whatever age just have to do whatever they're told to do. And unfortunately, that is still the case. So I think a lot of education, training to be teachers, um, becoming academics in universities, staff development is very, very important. It, it is already very good. But that, mm -hmm. that is one thing because um, 
the belief of people, attitude of people needs to change further so that they become uh, sympathetic to students. I, I think most of them are now, so I, I don't accuse them, but I think that the shift can still be done. I think uh, when it comes to universities and university buildings, should there be the money, buildings need to be friendly and open. I don't think you can have physical barriers you know, with swipe cards going in. Um, you, they, need, they need to, you can't have receptionists who need to be trained just as well as the academics. You know, who look frightening in the uniforms. You need to have friendly people sitting there. Uh, universities need to be open not only to students, so they need to be open to the community. So you need to offer things not only physically with coffee shops and so on, where, where people can come in from the community, but also with programs. And uh, a building helps a lot, which looks open and friendly. Uh, I would like universities to offer everywhere children's universities. Um, many, if not most universities are doing that now, but children's universities in a way not only where they come in, you know, for one particular program uh, and then they get maybe a little cap and a ceremony, but, but where you really engage them. I remember our children's university we did at Queen Margaret University. It was just fantastic. We asked the kids, it was always over three months in the summer and particularly the six weeks when, when, when kids were on holidays and the children and the parents had problems finding a space for, for the kids to be. They would come to the university. And they did projects um, like reimagining a university. So we would ask seven-year-olds, what do you think a university should be like? And, and they had to draw pictures and so on. And I learned so much that was much more than any branding exercise you could even think of, you know. So, so I got free consultancy from these kids. So they they <laughs> they, they talked about um, the importance of animals and, and that it need to be in the middle of lots of green and and they wanted to have um, yeah, the animals to stroke and to take into classes and 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 the animals to learn about nature because it's it's so important to have nature incorporated in and so I mean it was brilliant and they yeah the pictures they drew and, and they even came up with little flags and emblems for the university that that just made me really think about how do people see universities, normally ivory tower, and but what should they be in drawing people in? What So we had these kids, and then when, the, when we graduated them at the end of the summer, we, we invited the families and carers in, and we had a big party. We had a big all-day party with, with the carers, and, and I engaged mainly with the, with the adults there. And you could see they could hardly speak to you. They, they were frightened of you and, and they looked around. And, but by the end of the day, they were so happy and so relaxed. And, and I felt maybe, you know, they, they have a different attitude towards university is. So that's, that's one thing, making universities really open and welcoming, both physically and, and through the programs. Uh, the other one clearly is... Um, everything digital. You know, universities just need to be completely and utterly on top of it. And, and maybe what could happen is, is that they simply become learning hubs. 
and physically you can come in whenever it's necessary or whenever you need to interact and want to interact with people. But a hub where at, at any time it suits you, you can pick what you need to do as part of, of your learning program. We actually imagined something similar. I'm part or actually just resigned as a director of the Goodison group. I resigned because it's a Scottish group. And I said, look, I now live London and Italy. It's a bit too difficult. The Goodison group is a Scottish think tank about reimagining education. And, and we wrote uh, regular papers, which were just think mm -hmm. pieces. And it was trying to, uh, it was mainly uh, first and uh, secondary education, primary and secondary education, but we also went into tertiary education in the end. And it was just trying to forget about exams, it's trying to forget about curriculums, trying to forget about grades, trying to forget about any kind of framework, just really to have the child in the center and, and obviously involving children in it. We had all days with children telling us what they wanted just trying to, to free ourselves from the shackles of what we think education should be like. Yeah, and we came up with this very, very free model of uh, a hub, which was well supported digitally and by people to draw people in whenever they could and having uh, as flexible education as possible, take as long as you can. Obviously, it's very pie in the sky, it's very much, let's forget about money, let's forget about the framework we are in. But it, it uh, did influence uh, Scottish government because the Goodison Group is, is twinned with Scotland's Futures Forum, which has parliamentarians on it. So we did work together in order just to give them some stimulus, you know, just to think a little bit out, out of the box. So your reimagining of, of uh, higher education is about thinking outside of the box, being inclusive, uh, using digital delivery, but importantly, reframing the position of the university within the community. Have I, have I reflected what you said? You know, I could have said that uh, in, in, in three words, just like you. So I, I talked and talked and no, talked and you yes, summarized no, it beautifully. <laughs> No, your stories were wonderful. They really were wonderful. But just to finish, what advice would you give to the younger Petra uh, in terms of what she sees to be important as an educated life? Um, well, I think it's just believe in yourself, full stop. Not more than that. Uh, because all my life I, I was put down, well, not all my life, not anymore, obviously, uh, people are very kind to me, but uh, where, where I come from, I, I wasn't given the confidence to, to shine. And uh, the only advice would have been believe in yourself because I was such a painfully shy girl who just really, really didn't think I, I could achieve anything. So that's it, believe in yourself. And I think, I think at that, I agree with that, and I think it's gendered. I think for many, many uh, students who don't come from a background where they have the cultural capital to navigate universities, they don't believe in themselves. And you, you are a wonderful example of somebody not only who believed in herself, but also managed to navigate and negotiate a system that, that really didn't support her. So. Your life has been an inspiration for me. So thank you oh. very much for talking me, to me today. And I hope that one day that we do meet face to face. It would be very nice. <laughs>
it would be very nice to meet you. But uh, thank you, Petra, and enjoy your time in, uh, in London and in Italy. I couldn't think of a better life except perhaps living in Australia. <laughs> I love Australia. I love Sydney. <laughs> thank you, Judith. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium. An open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. Studiosity.com slash students first.